We're going to go to Genesis 12. We've been going through Genesis. I told my wife this morning's sermon will either be good or a train wreck, and I'm really not sure which one it's going to be. So, buckle up. <laughs> Genesis chapter 12. We went, as you can tell, I do, a, I mean, man, do I go through the text quickly, because last, uh, last time I preached, we got all the way through three entire verses. I'm sorry for that. Uh, I do have a, I have a word I want you to grapple with, though, before we get here, before we get into this. Here's the word. You ready? Immutability. Immutability. What does that mean? Immutability. God is immutable. It's a big theological word that just means unchanging. It's one of the foundational attributes of God, in fact. God is unchanging. Why is that foundational? Well, if you think of the concept of God, he must necessarily be unchanging. If he's perfect, if he is infinitely holy and infinitely just and infinitely all these other things, well, then he can't change. If, he, if he's perfectly holy and he changes, what is he now? Unholy. If he's perfectly just and he changes, he's unjust. Okay, so one of the large differences between us and God is that God is unchanging. He's immutable. We're not. Do you change? I hope so. If you're a Christian, you should be changing, right? You should be changing to be more and more like Jesus Christ, right? We call that process sanctification. You should be more like Christ today than you were 10 years ago or when you first came to the Lord, right? Unless you came to the Lord last night, okay? Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, that is, most people don't realize, that, that scripture is actually forwarding the deity of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is unchanging, he is God. God is the only entity that's, that's immutable. Okay? Hebrews is showing us very clearly, Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus is unchanging. And I want to argue today that just as God's character and attributes have never changed... So his method of salvation has never changed. He has always chosen a people for himself, and he has always saved those people by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, they were saved by faith in the Messiah who was to come. Now we here in the New Testament are saved by faith in the Messiah that came. Right? We look back to the cross. They were looking forward to it. They had an imperfect vision of what was going to happen. We have a much clearer vision today, the New Testament tells us, and that's good. But we're still saved by the same method, and that should be of great comfort to you. And the reason that should be of great comfort to you is this. God is unchanging. And when he decides to love you, when he decides to pull you out of the sin and the mire, he doesn't change his mind. That may not give you much comfort, but I want to tell you something. I'm one of those guys that if you can screw it up, I can do it. You understand what I'm saying? And I will make the argument, probably most of you are too. 1 Corinthians, let me just read this to you. 1 Corinthians one twenty six says this, You see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And he's chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen so that no flesh could glory in his presence. If you're one today that does not have it all together, that is a washout, that has been a failure, is a failure, that you can screw it up. If it can be screwed up, I have good news for you. I have a gospel from a God who does not change his mind, who has chosen the weak and the lowly and the broken and the despised and has chosen to use those when he could have chosen the very best of the best. He could have chosen the cream of the crop and he said, I don't need that. I'll take the broken. I'll take the lowly. I'll take the despised. I'll take the shamed. Before I knew the Lord, let me just tell you this. I was such a drunk. Wasn't old enough to drink yet, but that didn't stop me. I had one semester in college. Are you ready for this? My GPA was point six zero. When you're to the place where your GPA and your blood alcohol content are rivals, you're, you're not winning academic medals. Are you understand me? Okay. Now, today, I typically do well in the classes that I take. But I, I want to get something across to you. The reason I tell you that is a good reason I tell you that. God did not decide to love Paul Wilson because Paul Wilson was so good and so big and so smart and so wise and so politically connected, God said, wow, look what I could do with this guy. And sometimes the gospel that is preached in the church today resounds to that effect, and it's nonsense. God did not choose you because you were so wonderful and wise and rich and powerful and well-connected and you were just so pretty and you just had everything together and you had it all going on. No, he chose you in spite of you. He chose me in spite of me. He chose those that the world would have said should never have been chosen. He chose to take them and love them, sanctify them, change them, make them more like him, and then go and shame the mighty. He took a bunch of wretched, washed-out fishermen and said, I want you to go talk to the Pharisees. That would be like Ronnie, who does not have a degree, going and crossing swords with, you know, a guy that's multiple PhDs. From the world's outset, they go, well, this is not even a contest. And yet these guys, these untrained, wash-out fishermen are putting them to shame. Why? Because God has chosen the weak to shame the mighty. And we as Christians don't have to put up a facade. I think sometimes we put up a facade, okay? I think we try to make it seem like I'm a good Christian. I've got it all together. I have news for you. I've been walking with the Lord for about 20 years now. I don't have it all together. I'm trying to be better than I used to be. But I'm still a mess in places, and so are you. Now, that is not an excuse for us to say, well, then, you know, who cares? No, we should care. We want to glorify the Lord in the way that we act, in the way that we live. But I'm trying to tell something to you. Christianity is not the religion of the altogether wonderful, lovely, got it all together, politically connected. They're the smartest, they're the best, they're the greatest. No, it's just the opposite. 
the vast majority of people, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying, look at your calling. The vast majority of people that the Lord decides to love, he does so in spite of themselves. And that should be good news for you today. Why do I want you to grapple with this immutability? Because God has chosen to love you, period. And he loves you even when you fail, even when you don't have it all together. Even when you didn't get up and do what you should have done that day. Even when you didn't get all the things on your checklist accomplished, he still loves you. He has still called you. He is still guiding you and leading you. He's not abandoned you. He's not like people. So when everybody else screws up, we throw them on the side and say, I don't want to work with that guy. God is not that way. And that should give you great comfort today. It certainly does me. If God were prone to change his mind, I promise I've given him plenty of opportunity to do so and plenty of reasons to. And I've given him plenty of reasons not to love me and plenty of reasons not to use me and not to redeem me. And yet it doesn't change his mind. And I'm glad of that. <coughs> I have a, a phrase up here on the, on the board in front of you and I have it written on my hand. I've had it there for a week. Because there's something in that that we miss. Lekakarai, which means come follow me. That's the phrase Jesus said to the disciples. And it's basically the phrase that God said to Abram. Come follow me. It does not mean the same thing you think if you told your kid, hey, oh, you're thirsty? Come follow me. Let's go to the fridge. That's not what it means. John 15:16 says this, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. And that's what he did with Abram. Listen, Abram is the one that everybody if you had met Abram before God called him out, he was the one that everybody would have loved to hate, okay? Basically Abram was a spoiled rich brat. His dad was big money guy. And the idol maker, politically connected, right? He didn't have a whole lot of calluses on his hands before God called him and said, hey, time for you to leave your family, your father's house, leave everything behind and come follow me. Lekakarai. No, he, he was pretty soft. You met people like that, let's be honest. Kind of spoiled, kind of entitled, kind of soft. Are they annoying? If they're not annoying to you, that's probably because you are them. Yeah, they're annoying. And you know what God decides? I'm going to take this entitled, spoiled, rich brat, and I'm going to love him. And I'm going to change him. And I'm going to make him the father of the faith. That's saying something. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. And I'm glad, I'm glad he did. Genesis 12 says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house and go to a land that I'll show you and I will make you a great nation. Okay. I would like to point out the obvious. If you want to be a nation, you must have at the minimum two things, people and land. If you don't have those two things, you can't be a nation. Correct? 
Okay, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have children, and I'm going to make a great nation out of them. All right, you're catching this. God says very clearly to Abram, here's what my plan is for your life. All right, good. I will bless you, and I'll make your name great. Wow. You shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who curse you. I will curse him who curses you. Or bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we talked about that obviously being Jesus Christ who had come through the lineage of Abraham. So Abram departed just as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. That's funny. I want you to get away from your family and out of your father's house and I'll go to a land I'll show you. And right here, the very next verse, and Lot went with him. Lot was pretty close with Abram, obviously. And that makes sense to me. Have you ever had a nephew or a niece that you were close? Sure, sure, you bet. But God told him to leave. I'm sure it's one of those that Lot's, you know, upset about this man. Don't leave us. Don't leave us. Well, okay, come on. Why don't you come along? Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. People lived a little bit longer in those days. You might notice by reading through Genesis. Yeah, which is kind of a big deal because his wife was 65. And she was the fairest lady in the land. Right? Typically not that way today. He took his wife Sarai, which, by the way, the, the word Sarai means princess. Makes sense. I wonder if she was a little spoiled. I'm trying not to do that to my daughter. Not succeeding. And Lot, his brother's son, that's his nephew, and all the possessions that they had gathered and all the people whom they had acquired. Look, if you have possessions and people that you've acquired, you're well off. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram again and said to your descendants. Okay, that's the people that come from you. That's your children, right? You know what descendants are. I will give this land. Okay, here's the nation. I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to give them this land. You with me? Has God promised that Abram will live long enough to have children? Yes, twice. Okay. There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He didn't hear a voice in his head. God literally appeared in front of him and said, this is what I'm going to do for you. I have heard a lot of atheists say, if only he would show up, I'd believe him. Uh, No, you wouldn't. He showed up to Abram, and Abram didn't believe him. And I'm going to show you how we know that. He built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and from there moved moved to the mountain east of Bethel. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. That means he worshiped. Genesis 4:26 says, and from that day, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Men began to worship God. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped God there. And so he journeyed, still going toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. And the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know you're a beautiful woman. And it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they'll say, this is his wife. And they'll kill me, but they'll let you live. They will kill me, 
and they'll let you live. God appeared to him face to face and said, hey, dude, I'm going to give you descendants and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to protect you and you don't have to worry. This is what I'm going to do with your life. And the very next passage, he's saying to his wife, hey, you've got to deceive people so they don't kill me. Bro, God appeared to you, literally. You didn't hear it in a voice in your closet reading Jesus Calling. He literally appeared to you and said he's going to keep you safe. They will kill me, but... They will kill me, but let you live. Please say you're my sister so that it will go well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Oh, oh, God's not powerful enough to protect you, but your wife can. Fantastic logic, Abram. Yeah, you're getting it, buddy. The God who literally appeared to you and promised you this stuff is not powerful enough, but your wife, who is not unchanging, who is not all-knowing, who is living in very much a a male-dominated society, she's going to keep you safe, huh? Let's see how that plays out. It's a bold move, Cotton. See how it plays out for him. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. She's 65, and she is fine. I mean, you know, she must be a good-looking lady. The princes of Pharaoh saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. I mean, you're good looking when people are walking through the land. They're like, dude, that girl's so fine. We got to tell Pharaoh. Like, we got to tell the king because that girl is good looking. She's smoking hot. Let's go tell the king. That's what they did. And what's Pharaoh do? All right, well, bring her into my house. The woman was taken to Pharaoh's house, and he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, camels. Remember, he thought... This was just her brother. And I'm going to give you all these gifts, basically a dowry. I'm going to give you all these gifts because I'm going to take your, you know, your sister in to basically be one of my wives. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh, eventually, something happened. We don't know. The scriptures don't tell us. My thinking, it was probably a dream. And the reason I think that is because that's exactly what happens, you know, eight chapters later when Abram does the exact same thing. After God appears to him again. The Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's your sister? I might have taken her as my wife. In other words, Pharaoh is saying that was my plan. Now, he has not come near her. He has not touched her. But his plan was eventually to marry this girl. Now, therefore, take your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Okay, he's acting in fear because he's really not believing what God told him. I wonder if you ever do that. The Bible says this is how I'm supposed to act, but we know better. Yeah, do you? Fast forward with me to chapter 17. Here's what we see. Abram was 99 years old. This is verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him again. Appeared to him. Didn't talk to him in a dream. Appeared to him physically. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am almighty God. What does that mean? Almighty means sovereign. I control everything, Abram. I am almighty God. Therefore, walk before me and be blameless. Abram, stop lying to people. I'm going to keep you safe. 
I will make my covenant between me and you. Look, since you didn't believe me last time, let me explain this to you. I am going to make a covenant between me and you. Okay? It's just like a marriage. Big partner, little partner. I am going to keep you safe. I am going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. All right? I've chosen to love you in a way that's special and different than everybody else out there. Abram, just believe me. I'll make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram, you're a little thick here. You haven't had any kids yet. But I'm going to give you kids. That means I'm not going to let you die until that happens. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you'll be the father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram means exalted father, which is kind of ironic because he didn't have any kids. Whatever. But your name will now be Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. You're going to have lots of kids. And I have made you a father of many nations. There's so much in that. I wish I could delve into it. I don't have time. Have made you. Why is God speaking in the past sense? But it's something that hasn't happened to Abram. It's as if he's the Alpha and the Omega, huh? I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. By the way, which includes you. If you're a Christian today, you're a spiritual descendant of Abraham. You're an adopted kid. God promises to be your God forever. He's not throwing you away. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you're a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, that's chapter 17. You fast forward to chapter 20. Here's what you find. Abram's had his name changed. God has appeared to him, appeared to him twice. Not talked to him in a dream. Not gave him some illuminating... You know, scriptural insight. He's literally appeared to him twice. <clears throat> and here's what Abraham does. Uh, verse 2. Now Abraham said to Sarai, his wife, she's my sister. Abraham, bro, are you still not getting this? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. He's like, she's your, she's your sister? Well, hot diggity dog. I just happen to be available. One more slot, still available for pretty girl. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you're a dead man. I believe that would scare me. If I had a dream like that, I'd wake up, change my huggies, probably not go back to bed. That's pretty much what happened with Abimelech. (laughs) Indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman you've taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation too? Did he not tell me she's my sister? And she, even she herself said, that's my brother. In the integrity of my heart, I've done this. I didn't know any better, God. I mean, I get it. I've transgressed, but I didn't know. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Here it is. For I also withheld you from sinning against me. Uh, Excuse me? Who withheld him from sinning? God. Is God sovereign? Yeah. Yeah. And I, therefore, did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. I've I've had 
discussions with people before where they say, well, Abraham wasn't a prophet. He was a, you know, he was the father of the faith. And I'm like, look, if God calls you a prophet, you're a prophet. I don't care what anybody else calls you. If God says you're a prophet, that's what you are. He's a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live. But if you don't restore her, know that you will surely die. You and all who are yours. And the Bible says he got up early, got his men together and said, hey, fellas, I uh, had kind of a bad night last night. Got a new plan, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Abraham is doing the same thing over and over, isn't he? Abraham is failing in this test, in this trial. And God takes him, saves him out of that test and trial, right? And then brings him to himself and says, hey, look, buddy, here's the deal. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. Stop acting this way. Repent. Metanoia. Change your mind, right? It's a Greek word, I know. Wouldn't be used in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, you get the point. And then what happens? Well, it's not too awful long. He's in the same kind of test, isn't he? Got good news for you. God will test you. But it's pretty much pass-fail, which I always thought was easier, right? Yeah. And guess what happens if you fail? Well, you get to do it again. Isn't that nice? Guess what happens if you fail that one? You get to do it again. Guess what happens when you pass? Confetti, fireworks, we throw a party, and then you get a new test. (laughs) That's the Christian life. You know why? Because God's number one goal for your life is not your comfort. God's goal for your life is to grow you into Christ-likeness. And that typically comes through trial. It comes through tough times. Everybody can serve God when the sun is shining and everything's well, can't they? But you see what's really on the inside when the time gets tough. You know what you see? You see where a person's faith really is when their heart's broken, don't you? When your heart is crushed, will you shake your fist at God? Or will you come open arms? Will you say, I hate you, I despise your ways? Or will you say, I love you, help me, heal me? It's interesting because at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 21, we finally see Abraham trusting God. Abimelech, who's the king, and Phicol, who's the commander of the army. Okay, look, if, if the president today and the general of the army rolled up and said, we've got to talk to you, I'd probably be a little bit intimidated. Would you? Yeah, you can tell me how big and tough and bad you are, but you'd be intimidated too. And they do just that. They roll up to talk to Abraham, and Abraham rebukes him. He's not rude. He's not mean about it, but he does say that. Hey, hey, you, you, dug, you guys took this well that my servants dug. Right? And the very end of the chapter, verse 34 tells us he stayed in the land of the Philistines for many days. Finally, he is trusting God is going to keep me safe. God is the one who has decided the bounds of my life. And I am just as safe here in the land of the Philistines as I am in my home country. Why? Because it is God who has decided the bounds of my life. And it doesn't matter if every Philistine in the army pulls a bow and puts that arrow toward me. If God has decided I will not die that day, it doesn't matter if 10,000 arrows are in the air. They're not going to touch me. And it's not because I'm not going to escape those arrows because I'm so fast and deft and athletic and smart. I'm going to escape those arrows because the God of creation has chosen to love me despite me, in spite of me. 
And trust me, if they were shooting a lot of arrows at me, I mean, that's a big target. So if they don't hit me, obviously the Lord's doing something. Why is that a big deal? Because guess what happens in Genesis 22, right after that? Finally, Abraham goes, I trust you, God. He goes, good, I'm so glad you finally have got that through your thick head. Now, that boy that you love, take him to Mount Moriah and kill him. Uh, what? Does Abram question? Does, he's, does he delay? No, he gets up early the next day loads up and says, me and the boy are going to go worship and we will return. The Bible tells us later, he was convinced, well, it's God. He can raise him up from the dead. I'm going to go put him to death and God's going to raise him from the dead. That's faith. And God says he accounted it for righteousness. That same faith dwells in you. You live by that faith. You haven't just gambled your son's life on it. You've gambled your eternal soul on it. Why? Because God has opened your heart to faith. He has chosen to love you, and he's not changing his mind. It's a new kind of Abraham. Lek Akarai, come follow me. God, what are you going to do if I follow you? Probably he won't answer that question. I'm sure Abram had a lot of questions. You want me to go to a land you haven't even shown me? Where are we going? Doesn't matter. Come follow me. We all, as Christians, we want, we want to see the entire plan. God, where are you taking me? Where is this ending up? Where is this going and why? Because I want to be able to you know, scrutinize this and see if I agree that this is a good thing. And typically, that's not how he operates. Thy word is a lamp unto my path, right? Well, that, that was a foot lamp. A lot of times, God just gives you one step or two. Here's where I want you to walk. I don't know, God, that doesn't look like a good path. Doesn't matter. That's where I want you to walk. I don't know. It looks to me like a lot of people are going to hate me for that. This is where I want you to walk. Do you trust me or not? Well, God, I can't see the whole picture. I know, but I can this is where I want you to walk. God, there's a lot of people that are going to say this is really foolish. This is not wise. I know. This is where I want you to walk. Remember, Corinthians, you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. That's exactly what he did with his disciples, and that's exactly what he's done with you. There's a background that most people miss. Look, the, the call of the disciples of Jesus is a key passage, obviously, in the New Testament. It's found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 5, it's all on the Sea of Galilee. Usually we read that and we don't think much of it. Yeah, Jesus went down to the sea and called his disciples. No, you don't get that. Jesus went down to the sea to call his disciples. Well, yeah, so? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Jewish culture at the time. At that time, the education of Jewish children began around the age of five or six. And from then through about ten, they would be taught the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the five books of Moses. 
They were expected to memorize them and to memorize them well. Once that study was done, if they did a great job memorizing them and they could give you, you know, you ask them, well, what does Genesis say about this or Exodus say about that? If they did a good job and they could give you the right answers, they got to go to the next level. But the vast majority of them were sent home. Sorry, buddy, you just, you just didn't learn it well enough. So we're going to wash you out. All of you guys, you're going home. You small, you small little group, you stay here. For the next roughly four years, they would start learning the rest of the Talmudic books, right? The, the, the prophets. Um, well, the rest of the books of the Old Testament. They would also learn the art of answering theological questions with a question. Right? It was kind of an early form of Jewish rhetoric. At the end of this, there's another cut. If you're good enough, you've learned all that stuff well enough, you get to go to level three. If not, again, we're washing you all out. Okay, so this, the best of level one gets to go to level two. The best of level two is the only ones that get to go to level three. Everybody else gets washed out. This is the cream of the crop. The best of the best is now here. And now, what do they do? The best of the best, then they try to go find a rabbi. And, and you would try to, the rabbi would give you lots of questions, and he'd see if he likes you or not, and whether you were smart enough or not. And if he decided that you were worth his investment, that you were worthy of him to spend his time and his labors and his life on, he would look you in the face and say, Lek Akarai, come follow me. It actually means something more like, come become a follower of me. We translate it as, come follow me. That's the best of the best. There were guys that made it through the best, to the best of the best, to level three, and no rabbi wanted to take them, and guess what they had to do? Go home and learn to trade. You washed out. Guess where you're going? You're going to go do whatever your dad does. He's going to teach you how to become a carpenter. He's going to teach you how to be a fisherman. He's going to teach you how to build homes. He's going to teach you how to build roads. He's going to teach you how to, you know, cut meat, how to be a butcher, how to be a baker, how to be a candlestick maker. He's going to teach you a trade. But the point is, you're obviously not the best of the best. Do you think you would be a little bit disappointed if you did all that study and they said, sorry, kid, go home? Yeah, you know who else would be disappointed in you? Your family. Their hopes are riding on you, too. It was a huge honor for you to become a rabbi. You're the best of the best. Your family is no longer going to be unknown. Oh, they're going to be very well-known, well-politically connected. They're not going to have problems with money anymore. There are a lot of hopes and dreams riding on your shoulders, and when you washed out, guess what happened? You're disappointed in yourself. You're crushed. Your family is too. And that's where we find the disciples. Jesus should have been choosing his disciples in the temple. He should have been there at the Talmudic school. He should have been finding the best of the best of the best. You know, those guys that have all the letters at the end of their name. The guys that are really smart, they have all the answers. And yet Jesus is saying this, I don't care about that. He goes down and he chooses the washouts. Why did they throw their nets down and leave their boat so fast? This is a chance in a lifetime, and trust me, that had never happened before in, in Judea or the surrounding countries and probably never happened again. 
You did not have this unbelievably great teacher. And trust me, people knew who Jesus was. At 12 years old, he's amazing all the, all the Pharisees that are in the temple, all the rabbis. That, that kid is smart. Where did this 12-year-old kid get such, such learning? Do you think people knew about him? You darn right they knew about him. Now, they didn't know what he was about. They knew, hey, it's a little bit different. We don't know who his daddy is. But man, that kid's smart. And now he's a rabbi. And he's coming to the Sea of Galilee, to the washouts, to the washed up. And he's saying, Lekakarai. Where do you find them? In the middle of a hard day's work on the Sea of Galilee. What does that tell us about them? They were washouts. They were the ones who couldn't make the cut. They were not the best of the best. Stop trying to impress me by acting like the best of the best. You're not the best of the best. Neither am I. And yet God chose us to love us anyway. They weren't the cream of the crop. They were exactly the opposite of that. And Jesus chose them anyway. Are you a screw up? Are you a washout? You one that just couldn't make the cut? Are you somebody that's not quite smart enough? You're not quite strong enough? Not quite wise enough? Not quite pretty enough? Not quite athletic enough? Just not good enough? Not politically connected enough? You're not dignified enough? Well, I've got good news for you. We serve a God who entrusts his gospel to the foolish, the weak, the broken, the abused, the despised, the battered. We serve a God who calls and chooses to love with everything that he is laying down his very blood for the unlovely, the unlovable, the oppressed, the fools, the weary, despised, the washouts and the weak. And he promises with an unchanging, immutable promise to love them forever, period. Abram was the father of our faith. And just like Abraham, most of us are not the noble. We're not the pretty and the wise. I mean, you know, obviously. We're the broken. We're the outcast. We're the misfit. And I have good news for you. You're just who Jesus is looking for. You're just who he wants. If you can feel his tug on your heart today, that's because he has decided to love you. And I would urge you to do business with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being willing to love us who are not the best, we're not the brightest, the, the, the prettiest, the athletic, the good enough, the dignified enough. That you have chosen to love us. That you have entrusted the greatest message of all time to a group no one else would have chosen. You could have chosen the best of the best of the best. But you were willing to love the outcast, the misfits, the oppressed. Father, let us be like that too. Let us be those who show that same kind of love to the broken, the battered, the weary, the worn out, the washed out. That they might truly see you in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.